0: Welcome to the April Thesis, where we give real estate fresh perspective. Hosting for you today, we got me, Son, Ben, and me, Walker. We're pumped to have Jake Bjorseth with us today. He's the CEO and founder of Trendsetters, an ad agency focusing on the Gen Z market. They've worked with some Fortune 500 brands, and interestingly, they've been dipping their toes into real estate. Jake, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. Really thrilled to uh, dive into it. Yeah,
0: so let's start off. Love to hear a little bit about your uh, your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, kind of like how you got to where you are right now.
1: Yeah, certainly. So you know, I've uh, born and raised in Kansas City, still located here, uh, more of the suburbs, kind of thirty minutes out, Leawood, Overland Park area. Um, oddly enough, the high school, the public high school that I that I went to for two years after going through Catholic private school, uh, growing up, which was certainly an interesting experience, uh, <laughs> uh, but was actually the number one public high school in the country uh, in terms of like the, the GPAs and ACT source coming out of that. So while uh, across the nation, you know, I, I would rank a good student, I was kind of just above average, oddly enough. I mean, there were some incredibly uh, intelligent kids that, that, that were kind of in our network. And so it was interesting kind of that experience where I was always kind of interested in, in entrepreneurship, in business. And over time, I, I started learning, dabbling into it in high school um i I really dove into the startup scene here in kansas city uh which which that's kind of the benefit of being in a smaller city is it's a little bit easier to get connected and meet everyone and all of a sudden now everyone knows everyone and they know who you are Um, so it's kind of interesting how that works and from there it was business left and right at first it was it was landscaping or or i i should say like a a lawn mowing company pretty much and then scaling that out to the point where i'm not mowing any lawns but my five friends are they get paid 20 bucks i'm taking 10 bucks off the top with a client paying 30 and awesome business model and so i was always trying to find ways to to just kind of build businesses do things my way i had never had an actual career job like working at a car wash nowhere like never no actual job experience um, until my senior year i actually did an internship with cerner uh, one of the biggest companies here in kansas city and and once i kind of had that on my resume then went to the startup space interned with a, a really cool uh, startup here based in Kansas City built an incredible relationship with the founder who's still been a mentor of mine. And while I was there, that's when I started Iteration One of Trendsetters, which at the time it was just me and my my dumbass friends doing fun things on Snapchat and filming it. And this is both this is like pre-DJ collade Snapchat. So this is before it even became what it is you know today. Uh, even some of the features weren't weren't accessible. Like you couldn't subscribe. It was literally like people had to add us as friends. We had about 25,000 people uh, at us on Snapchat. And then all of a sudden, all these small businesses, restaurants, you name it, started asking us, hey, would you promote us and we'll give you 100 bucks." And at the time, I was like, you're going to give me 100 bucks to post a video? Like, yeah, I'm totally down for that. At that point, I learn about what marketing is and advertising and ad agencies. And then I find myself, that, that kind of continues to grow. I find myself my first week on, on campus at the University of Kansas. Um, I had decided to go to college at that point, later dropped out. I uh, find myself on a consulting call with Noodles & Company telling them all about Snapchat. And I spent all week ignoring my classes. It was syllabus week, so that's fine. And instead building this one-hour presentation on Snapchat. Well, two minutes into the call, they made it very clear that they don't give a damn about Snapchat. They just want to know about our generation, which I hadn't prepped anything for. So then I was just kind of shooting off the cuff. But I guess I did a good enough job because from there, I quickly realized it hit me wait a second, they don't care about social media. They don't care about this, that, or the other thing. What they care about is understanding this generation because how should they, as Gen X you know, individuals sitting in a boardroom, how are they going to understand what new products and what new brands and what new marketing methodology is going to be the best at engaging young people? And so that's kind of when it hit me like a ton of bricks. And then after shattering my jaw in seven pieces when I was at, at, at college and getting going through jaw surgeries – um, and, you know, I'm sitting there with my jaws wired shut, like you, you can't cough, can't talk, can't eat nothing for two months. And at that point, I just made up the, in my mind that okay, I'm going to finish up this year at school, and while I'm doing that, I'm going to start this company, and we're going to do this thing. And I didn't know what it was going to be, but um, I hustled, didn't really live off any sleep uh, at, at that time, I was literally living in a attorney house while commuting back to Kansas City, 45 minutes away. So it was certainly interesting. But that was kind of the origins of Trendsetters, and now. Uh, I'm the founder of Trendsetters. It's an agency that helps brands understand and reach Gen Z consumers. We have a team of 24, and we work equally at the Fortune 500 level with brands like McDonald's, L'Oreal, and North Face, um, and then a lot in the startup arena as well. So kind of a combination of those two. So that is my way too long of an essay and bio and intro, Uh, but hopefully I, I gave enough backstory that we can divulge into if needed.
0: No, it's funny. You could almost say you're the uh, you're the Kanye West of the Gen Z marketing world. You know, he his origin story
1: starts with his wire, his mouth wired shut, too. Of course. And if I'm on the early career trajectory of Kanye, I'm all for it. And the <laughs> Kardashian, I'm cool with that. As long as I don't go where he is now and now he's getting the divorce and doing the crazy stuff. So um, if as long as I I, I guess I got to find that point, if that is my my true trajectory, <laughs>
2: Cool. So uh, like you were talking about, you had some experience in marketing and, uh, and I checked that you actually worked at some funeral homes and in the health industry. And I was wondering oh, how yeah. you've adapted some of the marketing techniques from those past experiences to develop a language specific for Gen Zers.
1: Yeah. So for some uh, for some backstory on that, uh, at my high school, there, there was a program that was started called CAPS, the Center for Advanced Professional Studies. This was the only reason I transferred from a private school to then a public school. Um, also, my parents were stoked about it, save a little bit of money uh, and go to what it was a better school anyway. But and in, in this was the first iteration, the one located in the Overland Park area. And what it was is I would go to school for the first three, four classes of the day. And I, I, I would just do my core kind of English, math, science um, and then one, one other like elective. Right. And then the afternoon I would spend from 12 to 4 p.m., at the Center for Advanced Professional Studies. And we would study from teachers who were actual former business professionals. And it wasn't just people who had been trained to teach. They actually had no uh, no, no experience in teaching. They, they were just people who had retired and now they, they, they want to teach in this arena. So it's there that I studied business. And so what they would do is then hook you up with an internship um, and you would do that internship. You wouldn't work directly with that company necessarily, like go to that facility but it'd be inside of that program. And so the first project I get assigned to, and this is how I, 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 I think this was a, the point where I had to decide if I was going to go into marketing or not. And if I was any good was I was assigned to do marketing for a funeral home, which um, as you could assume is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, so, so that was kind of that, that experience and, and kind of the initial origins um, there. But, but I would say, you know, a large part of my marketing background and how that's been developed Um, is not necessarily through any institution, any system, any kind of courses, you name it. While I certainly dabble into a lot of information education, it's been more so doing it. I think kids today, especially when I look at Gen Z, your average 12-year-old today has a better understanding of marketing than I would argue a college graduate in the 80s because the 12-year-old today the the amount of information, ads, content that they're seeing on a daily basis from brands is just such a higher number. They know how to create a quick 15-second video based on the latest trend and make it go viral. They're looking at their analytics and whether they're doing so consciously or subconsciously, um, they're they're still kind of analyzing all that data. So it's wildly interesting to see that. And what's so fascinating is this next generation of consumers is not just consumers, but they're creators as well. And I think as we see the the next decade for brands, that'll be a trend that we continue to see kind of rise.
3: As you're, so that's super interesting, because to me that sounds like basically Gen Zers are almost like advertisers themselves. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking to brands early on, how are you how are you explaining this to them? Where it's not so much like okay, we'll go to an ad agency, and then they'll make us you know a palette of options across our channels and all this other stuff. It's much more like okay. I have to engage with these people because they're kind of like contractors in a certain sense. Like how do you thread that needle with brands who are not used to working with influencers?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's funny because they come to us and and what we do is we reverse this question on them. And then it all, all of a sudden kind of makes sense. We ask them, Hey, why were you interested in potentially working with us? Or what, what, what's that to you? Oh, well you're Gen Z. So I would assume, you know, Gen Z best. Right. And we say totally agree. But the reality is, We we know Gen Z from an agency perspective and on all these campaigns and from a marketing and business strategy perspective, but your Gen Z consumers and potential consumers, they know what they want best. And we as an agency, we don't have the answer. We need to go figure that out. And so something that we always advise brands is you need to be a listener first and a strategist second. Far too many, they want to build crazy strategies. They want to go into the nuts and bolts. They believe any and all insights reports they see. They make decisions based on a headline. They they, they read them or, oh, you know, I, I was at uh, a Christmas holiday party and uh, I saw that uh, my my 12-year-old niece was on TikTok. So that must be like the cool thing, right? And it's like, well, yeah, that could be true, but we need to have a deeper conversation, right? So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how we approach it. And that's what we advise all brands is we need to be brands of tomorrow need to listen first and create. Whether it's content, marketing, products, services, you name it, they need to create accordingly to that listening. And the reality is the ability to listen nowadays is greater than it's ever been because you can send a tweet out. You can go, you can go do it in advanced search on Twitter and see what everyone's talking about uh, in regards to your brand. You can go directly see that. And so that, that's what we're always advising our brands is, look, we're an agency. We, we like to formulate a lot of the insights and answers and, and create ideas based on those. But the reality is, we as an agency, we don't have the answers. Your end consumers do. And that's the case, whether it's Gen Z, millennials, you name it. That's the case across the board. I think it's just this generation is is far more maybe
3: empowered to do so. Do you see brands being receptive to that? I mean, obviously, Trendsetters is doing very well right now. I mean, you guys are hitting off a great year. um, And it seems to be working, but it's just such a striking thing because this is not something that you would have expected, you know, it's sort of like brands are known as these big behemoths that come in, they have 15 different agencies. Like it's a very structured thing. And all of a sudden it's very decentralized. It's sort of like a co-creation of these ads or these, you know, campaigns or whatever with their consumers. And that just seems like a fundamentally different mode of thinking for, these brands who traditionally, you know, for them dropping a hundred thousand dollars on a contract or something for one campaign is probably not a big deal, but dealing with a personality, that's a completely different kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's certainly a an uphill battle for brands. And here's a conversation I get often. You know, I was, t- I was chatting with the CMO in the entertainment space. And what she asked me was, Jake, I when is it like when are we done adding platforms? Because I mean, just think about the history of marketing advertising for a second. You you go back to the '50s and say you're running print and TV and radio, so you're doing all three, which most would not do all three. They maybe one, two, or or or, or another, um, or get some boost on the ground. You name it. Well, okay. So let's say you're doing all those three. Well, you're going to come up with one idea, and from that develop a. You need to develop an audio spot, which is likely going to be just the audio derived from the video you create for the 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 one 30 second spot that's going to go on TV. And then you need to develop a print spot or multiple print spots all around the same campaign. So at a maximum, at an absolute maximum, you are developing six pieces of content baked in from one idea. And the way it's run is those aren't changing every day like they are now. The way it used to work, it was a much longer timeline. So call it 90 days, six every 90 days, 24 times the entire year. The the, the Nowadays, it's like, Brands need, need and try to post 24 times in a day. So the, the task that, that is associated with that, then what you do is you tailor on the fact that within these platforms, too, it's a two-way social media street. So you don't just push it out like a TV or a radio spot or a print ad. You have to push it out, and then you have to engage, and then you have to respond, and you have to answer DMs, and the platforms keep just adding up. Uh, you know, ju- just just last year, I think before TikTok's popularity, what what was it? It was Facebook, Instagram, maybe Pinterest, depending on where you're at. It was Twitter. LinkedIn finally became more of like a consumer thing. It's still not totally. Just-
3: IGTV was going to be the big new thing. Exactly.
1: You know? And then you have Snapchat. Not, not many brands really use that outside of paid advertising. Well, then now you add TikTok and now you add Clubhouse. And what we saw, although Parlor just got shut down, Parler really cites what is going to be inevitably the future of social media along with Clubhouse, which is we're going to continue to see fragmentation. So the six platforms you have today will quickly become 60. And I think that's the, the, the difficulty for brands today. And so it's one of those things where if, if that wasn't the case, I don't think they would be spending the time necessary to actually think about Gen Z. And that's really probably the only reason we, we exist and even have a chance in the first place. Um, but because that, that's the case, it's, it's almost like, you know, this is kind of what we have to do to survive. Yeah,
0: it's really interesting to think about, it, like, when, you know, the same conversation maybe 10 years ago, like, I was coming out of college, was how do you market to millennials, mm-hmm. right? That was obviously, you know, the last sub-generation or generation or whatever we call it. And, like, I graduated in 2009, I was searching for a job in 2008, and everyone was like, to understand a millennial you have to understand someone that lived their life you know, during the great recession or after the great recession. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like that, you know, there was kind of like a cutoff, right? Like I think I would even break down millennials into people that graduated college before Oh nine or after 09. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, being the East coast, a lot of it was before 09 working in finance and big business was everyone did it. Like if you had a good, if you had good grades at any college and you're trying to go work in New York, that's what you did. And then uh, post Oh nine, you have more people going to like Facebook, going to the tech industry, going to Silicon Valley, again, from this part of the small, small part of the world bubble that I grew up. I feel like there, was there a defining moment for Gen Z? Cause obviously COVID is a defining moment for everybody, but was there a similar, like equivalent to the great recession that you see that kind of like created a, an anchor point?
1: Yeah. So, so the great recession is an interesting one. It has affected Gen Z, but it's done so subconsciously. It's not something uh, that that could have been done at a conscious level. So, so take myself. I'm 21 years old. So, the older parts of Gen Z would be 24 now, maybe 23, likely. Um, so, so for myself in 2008, um, obviously I mentioned growing up like Leewood in Park. It's a nice area. I mean, you know, my parents weren't we weren't going to Cabo every weekend by any means, though. Uh, but but we did okay for ourselves, right? But in 2008, I can vividly remember no vacations within that two-year window. Uh, dad was actually financial advisor mom was a mortgage lender so like the two worst spots to be in for a recession of of the, the the housing market right uh and then the global recession so i i vividly remember that in like tightening groceries and like selling a car and no vacations and we you know we fortunately we didn't move homes or anything but i'm sure i asked for extra money to go do dumb things and and that was cut short so what's interesting is like i can't actually physically remember a single conversation I had or my parents arguing, arguing or worried about it. But I can subconsciously remember that. And what that's created is now a generation that's the most financially savvy that we've ever seen. They're, they're saving at younger age and they've actually saved more money during COVID than prior um, to COVID, despite their, their earnings going way down. Um, so, so all really fascinating subject matter. So I would say that that's really the first one. We're going to forget about that one, though, because what has happened in, in 2020 is going to take precedent. And what we're going to see post COVID is certainly this has had an impact on so many industries and so many consumers. But something to keep in mind is there's a reason we educate people when they're at a younger age. It's because their minds are young, they're mendable, your personality changes, you don't really know who you are yet, you're learning, you're you're curious. And when that's the case, I mean, think back to yourself at, at a personal level, who you were at 14, 16, 18, 20, and 22 the, the the gaps between how different you were in terms of a character are much wider than it would be from that same time window call it 30 to 40 while certainly you can change between 30 and 40 it's not as steep of a gap you know um you know there, there, there's kids in gen z that i or i guess anyone could reference high school and middle school it's like oh i went through an emo phase and then i was like totally into like this sport and then like i got cut from the team so then i was like into this thing and then i was into chess like you name it so so it's just interesting to keep that in mind so covid will be the new kind of deciding one and what we're going to see post covid what we're advising all of our clients this is really interesting and, and kind of difficult for us to even 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 like promote is all the insights that have happened prior that i don't want to say they they don't stand but there's there needs to be an asterisk because the reality is who we're going to see coming out of this is going to be entirely different and i think we'll see a lot more positives i think we'll also see a lot more negatives but we're really almost like wiping the, the slate kind of clean. Um, I would say then the other two that, that are underlying and not as talked about enough um, is, is going to be school shootings and then mental health crisis, which I kind of loop into a negative subconscious feeling. You know, 75 percent of Gen Z uh, is going to suffer a symptom of a mental illness before the age of 25. So we're, we're starting to see this mental health crisis, which is brought on by a lot of things, something to keep in mind, obviously testing and our awareness of it is better. So so that's obviously really vital to, to kind of note. Um, but of course, there's no denying the impact of digital and social and other technology and, and connection and um, you know pandemics um, leading to no more graduations and, and no more kind of physical events. So proms, homecomings, you name it, these are milestones in people's lives that have kind of gone away. So I think... Uh, you know, I, I guess the answer pre-COVID would have been oh wait financial crisis then those other two I mentioned. But now the answer is ninety percent um, twenty. All the events that have taken place in twenty twenty, and I guess now we have to include like the first couple weeks in twenty twenty one as well. Hopefully, we can cut it there. I'm 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 hoping.
3: That's interesting. Um, you were mentioning. Because we were just talking about the fragmentation in platforms and social media definitely has a role to play in the mental health crisis in this country and in the world as a whole. I'm curious, diving in a little bit more on that with you how, are you. how are you advising the brands that you are advising on this, given that they need to be on all these channels, their message needs to be positive? Like, are they aware of this or is this something that they are going, well, it's not really my problem. It's up to the platform to decide sort of the, you know. Thing that we're seeing play out on a national scale right now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that we're we're actually about to
1: start working with a client in that space. Um, so I'm really interested to work with them. Um, but there, there's a set, and, and this is something that we that we did this year that's new. So when when we set goals as a company, I'm I'm very against setting um, what I would consider kind of vanity goals, um, such as call it revenue, employee headcount, clients, um, a lot of things that I probably used to set, but but now we're at at to the spot where it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about that as much. Instead, I want to focus on impact. So, so we set a list of like five clear objectives that we want to work to solve. And and I can go through them all, but but one of those is that mental health crisis. So what we're rising for all of our client partners is how can we continue to support this? What, co- what can we do? Uh, whether that's L'Oreal in the beauty space or someone in the counseling and therapy space, you name it, all brands, I think, need to be cognizant of it. But they also need to understand that this is arguably one of the most complex problems, because it's a it's a social media and digital media and and information problem. It's a societal problem. It's a parental and uh, family relationship problem. Uh, It also uh, a a lot of my own kind of independent kind of readings and and research. It's also a physical health problem as well. There's no denying the, the impact of inflammation of the brain coming from really poor foods and what that does um and and there's incredible kind of research in that um so i think it's just such a complex problem that brands shouldn't be using this like they have used other movements such as sustainability or such as you know civil civil rights and equity things of that nature uh as something just to jump on but i think it's something they need to be cognizant of especially for large employers you take a brand like mcdonald's for example they employ 1.9 million people and that that's a, a very large city right um, and so brands like that, you, you don't not need to just be thinking about the consumer side, but also even internal. And, and something, one of the projects we actually did with McDonald's was we created a thank you campaign when COVID happened uh, in about May when this was released, where it was, it was McDonald's executives and, and this kind of emotional kind of video and we didn't even push it out to consumers, and ended up getting leaked and released out to them, and it, and, and it went bonkers, and it was a really great reach. But all it was was us thanking the employees, the people who were, you know, were literally on at that point, then the front lines, risking their lives to give someone that that bag with a smile on it. That just means so much. So it's um, it's a difficult one, and I would say you know brands need to be cognizant of it, but make sure it's not like some of the other movements, especially like sustainability don't just speak to it because it's super tricky.
2: Yeah, totally, I mean, with different, uh, like, I mean, Netflix coming out with the social dilemma, it's like a really pertinent issue. Everyone's really talking about how um, the importance of social media market marketing, but also um, the negative drawbacks of it. And if you could go a little bit more into um, how you're trying to make your brands conscious of it. I know that this thank you campaign and you working with different clients, but yeah. you know, considering that social media is such an important way to reach your consumer, but it's also something that is really drawing in, drawing them in for such long hours, and um, making it hard mm-hmm. for them to <laughs> trying to feel like they're both doing something that's productive, but also um, ultimately they're trying to be sold something so how do you find that balance between yes we're conscious of what we're doing but we're also trying to accomplish an objective of selling you something
1: yeah i mean at its core um i would say at a personal level i have a very utilitarian perspective on things of this nature and i'm always looking at okay well what's a great investment in terms of time energy resources that leads to the greatest results um rather than just trying to do everything and that's kind of just my 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 overall macro kind of approach to things at, at a global level of course in my personal life that's yeah, really can't be the case uh but uh, you know so so i would say it's something we're we're advising brands on i will say we're, you know we're not pushing and saying oh we need to post less on social media because social media is causing problems because it's correlation causation at that point it is is you know our ad we're per, we're promoting for for a client and pushing out on social media is that really causing the problem because it's going to get posted in any way by someone else and e- even at that moment like there, there's there's other things that that are bigger drivers of it and and one of those drivers that i think is is something we're, we're continuing to kind of research explore especially on the insight side is boredom it's this is a generation that has, and, and this is kind of the problem of so many platforms and so much content, and now there's like a streaming service for everything. Like I, Coca-Cola is going to have a streaming service tomorrow. Coca-Cola Plus, subscribe for $5, watch this can of Coke get opened on a loop 24-7, right? I mean, it's insane. But the problem of that this generation has faced, and I think that affects this most, um, just had a consulting call about this yesterday with a large fashion brand. It's there, there's there's zero moments of boredom. And what that creates is just it's dopamine, 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 dopamine all the time. And it's nonstop. And if you take a second and, and I have conversations with individuals, focus groups, things of that nature. And, and, and you ask people, hey, when was the last time you spent 30 minutes just with yourself, just thinking, right? Just thinking, right? And a lot of people can't remember last time that was the case. And generations of the past, though, you know, when, when you're uh, what, what do you do at 2 a.m. in the morning? You're not going to go onto your laptop and search the new Netflix show like you don't have access to that. Right. You you just kind of sit there, maybe read a book. But but you're thinking about yourself and you're letting yourself kind of experience that moment of boredom. So I think that's the thing we're pushing for brands is ensuring that we don't become these dopamine content engines and that we're not using kind of consumers, evolutionary kind of biases against them. Uh, for instance, any anything that that is sexualized or in, in any context of that nature, or kind of tricking people with the thumbnail, we're we're, we're always against that because I, I think that that's a part of a much larger problem um, that I mentioned before. But you see that happen a lot, especially in the marketing realm, and so those are things we want to kind of avoid. But at this point, I don't know the solution. It's just one of those things that we got to be cognizant of. What? Um Kind of this, uh, let's
0: just call it what it is, right? It's it's a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. Stress, we can, you know, the beast has many different faces. Mm -hmm. Let's put your agency hat on. What are some of the brands that are actually doing positive things in the space? Not necessarily not doing the negative marketing tricks or not doing the negative side. What are some of the sectors of brands that you maybe see, maybe you work with that are actually addressing this Mm -hmm. kind of more head on?
1: Yeah, so... Fenty was recently, um, promoted as the, or not promoted, but, but voted as the 2020 most inclusive brand. And, um, Fenty was founded by Rihanna in 2017. And unlike other kind of celebrity brands, it's taken on an an identity of its own that goes beyond just Rihanna. And it's, it's been all about beauty for all. And they've certainly pushed into the the diversity movement, uh, but it's about creating, uh, Equality within the beauty category that is often known for, for not having that. Um, when you look at all the potential product offerings, what your skin tone is determines your potential offerings. And it was just decades ago that, that if you were a certain skin tone, you would only have one or two or three options. And, and I think that's an inherent problem. It's, it's that you're creating for the mass market. And I understand that. And that's, that's, I think, an inherent problem of what is a capitalist structure, which I'm in no way against. I think it's just, you know, that's, that's how, the, how the marbles fall. So I think that's a brand doing uh, incredible things in the space in terms of uh, pushing the, the mental health narrative and doing so for, um, I would say, minority communities that, that that studies have shown that actually minority communities are more likely to face uh, mental health issues, especially when you're worried about all these things kind of in the back of your head. You're, you're driving around. I mean, I, I have African-American friends that, that are literally I, I tell them like, if you get pulled over, you call me immediately. I'm gonna call my my uncle who had, who knows some people at the police. Whatever, like, but we're gonna make sure everything's safe. And I don't think that's a conscious fear that they're. It's not necessarily always on the uh, on on their mind in terms of just my friends. I can only speak to them. Uh, but it's something that I mean. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. That's something that I don't have to think about. That's an added worry an added fear. And so it's just some of those things that you see it kind of negatively impact minority communities a, a little bit worse in terms of mental health. Um, another brand I, I would put two into this category that have just done a, a really badass job, and we're just perfectly positioned: uh, Headspace and Calm. Um, I think, and, and I think any brand that is pushing—I um, don't want to call it mental health awareness, but pushing um, well-being and yoga and meditation—we've seen those all kind of rise in popularity. I'm hoping Stoicism and the, the philosophy attached to Stoicism comes around as a fourth, but we'll see. Um, but anyone pushing anything in that category, I think, is is really doing like the the, the good work, and I think that's something we we need far more of. I, I think we've seen over the past decade the rise in physical health and physical fitness, and I think the next decade is going to be far more associated with mental health and mental fitness too. I probably have like nine apps downloaded on my phone dedicated towards like my brain health, cognition, education, information retention, uh, meditation, like all of those things, yoga so it's been really interesting to see that but i think any brands in that category especially headspace and Com have, have done a great job
0: so i think uh i think we gotta ask you a couple of real estate specific questions here as well and um then maybe just to kind of bridge the two you know obviously real estate is one of those kind of horizontal things right it's not it's not a vertical category it's not a product per se it's more just something that affects everyone you got a roof over your head it's one of um you know, Maslow's basic hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. How does a lot of the stuff you're touching on in terms of you know, how the events of 2020 affect how the next couple of years are going to look, how people think, changing preferences, how people spend time at home, more time at home, less time at home, more, maybe more work at home. How do you see some of the stuff playing in, in the real estate space and how people treat their their homes as a physical environment over the next five, 10 years?
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is a fascinating one. And um, I think it's a matter of what what creates your character as a person. This is a generation that within their personal brand stemming from some of these mental health problems, uh, which really stems from a lack of, I would say, overall purpose. And what we see then then taking place um, is this this sense of needing an identity. And uh, we see that in fashion and consumer purchasing. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go buy this because this is what it says about me, and I'm going to be sure to share it. And this thing, this that, and the other, I could share a million stories at a personal level of people that I know do certain things because of that. And it's not always for negative ones too; it can be for for incredibly positive ones as well. But I think that that's that's the question that that we're really posing with Gen Z and and how this ultimately shapes their character. Are they choosing right now to continue e- to either continue living at their home, live on a college campus, and do so virtually? Live at home. Uh, maybe they're still living at home. When, if they are still living at home, when do they plan to move out? If they are still living at home, what does their actual living arrangement look like? Who else is in that household with them? What does that family org structure look like? Uh, do they have divorced parents? We know divorce rates are incredibly high. If so, where you know what percentage of time are they spending at each? These are like certain attributes that I would say it's not that we didn't have to think about them prior, but now where you live has a greater impact on, on your life than ever before, because it's where you're spending way too much of your time. And so, um, I think, I think it's going to have an, an insane impact on who Gen Z ultimately becomes. And I think it's one of those things where, um, kind of post COVID we'll, we'll, will really start to see who Gen Z is based on what that looks like. You know, are more kids choosing to stay at home, save money, and are they even going to go back and and flop towards urban cities, which, I've seen a lot of data support that. I've also seen data that, that suggests suburban areas and maybe homes, like who knows what it's going to look like. And you guys would know that far better than I would. Uh, but I think it's interesting to think about because where Gen Z lives, I think cultivates who you are. For instance, you know, let's say, you know, I'm not as much of a hipster type, but but I have a friend that's a hipster type, but he go, he normally goes to the college university, but now he's living back at home in Overland Park. I can tell you firsthand Overland Park is not hipster vibes. Let me just tell you that. But I live downtown i'm i'm in downtown crossroads there's art everywhere it's flourishing so m- who i am is kind of cultivated by that and my characteristics kind of change. And i i vibe with it a little bit more and then my friend who's living in that suburban uh, traditional neighborhood kind of environment becomes maybe a little bit different so i think it's going to change who people are and what their identity is and that's going to be the most interesting thing because so much of your identity and even like quote unquote personal brand is based on like where you live. I know people that, and in and, and New York, and Chicago, LA, bigger cities where, where there's more kind of little towns and little cities within those, but even in Kansas City, like, do you live in Westport? Do you live in the Plaza? Do you live in the Crossroads? Do you live in downtown? Like where do you live in the river market? Where you kind of live, like almost says something about you, which, which is so fascinating in, in the real estate space.
3: Is that, uh, and actually Walker, you might be able to answer this question too. Um, because from the brand standpoint, what is Gen Z actually thinking? Like, you mentioned all these places, and in the past, 10 years ago, the big dream was, okay, I'm going to go get my degree, and then I'm going to move to New York, San Francisco, L.A., something yeah. like that, right? It was, let's go to where the action is happening. And as we're seeing, a lot of second-tier cities are now getting love from people who are exodus from these, you know, former companies uh, glorious places i mean i think they're gonna come back they'll get bored but um the idea that i have is you know what is it that you and your generation are actually looking at not just from a brand standpoint but like what is it is it the big cities or do you feel liberated enough with where technology is that you don't necessarily have to go to a big city to i mean you're in the heart you're in the heartland right now right trendsetters is in the heartland you don't need to necessarily be in new york city it might not even be to your advantage are other people in your generation doing the same thing is this is this you know what your generation is going to be known for I guess yeah yeah I haven't seen
1: the data of gen Z on this particularly but I will say at a personal level and kind of within our own community I've certainly seen more moving to whether it was like the city they grew up in or more of your second-tier cities uh, moving out of an LA or in New York or a Miami going towards more of these unique locations what I've also seen is those that are in gen Gen z that have a job where you can work remote and digitally um, and have a a sense of wealth and are kind of just they they provide for themselves and and they put food on their own table i've seen a, a lot of interest drawn towards travel and going somewhere for a month just somewhere random whether it's idaho or whether it's halfway across the country I can tell, tell you, even myself, like I'm legitimately thinking my, my, lease is up here in April. I'm legitimately thinking about doing one month in every single city, uh, or in 12 different cities for, for the year past that. Like, so I'm that, doing that right now.
3: I'm not even a Gen Zer. That ass. <laughs> I, I, that's,
1: that's what I think I'm going to go down. I'm going to have to ask you for more for deets on that. I don't know if I should be doing Airbnb or VRBO, but whatever it is. Um, I think that's really honest conversations that are taking place. Um, And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see.
2: I definitely think Gen Zers are moving out of major cities right now. Um, I think people, especially Gen Zers, are just really valuing space because, you know, a couple months ago prior to to COVID, we saw people not really care if they're in, like, a 100-square-foot studio as long as they're in the Lower East Side and they have restaurants and bars nearby. But now people are siloed into their own spaces and can't really see friends. So that's why people especially moving from new york to a city like austin where you can get three times the amount of space for the same price and have a garden and feel like you have your own um environment that you can create and that's just not something you can get in new york interestingly though you see so many people moving out of major cities but also equally a lot of people moving in three million people have moved out of new york and um About the same amount of people have moved in, only with the displacement of 70,000 people. So I think although Gen Zers are running away from major cities because of the stigma it gets of being so expensive for such small spaces, at the same time, uh, my brother and his friends have been able to lock in an Upper East Side brownstone for uh, an eighth of the price it was a year ago. So I think some people are definitely seeing an opportunity here to still stay in their hometown. Um, but other people are also looking at as a moment to venture into unknown territory.
0: Yeah, super interesting. I think back to like, as the fabric of these cities changes, kind of like, you know, Jake, what you were saying before about, you know, your environment, how gritty is your neighborhood? How much does that shape your identity? And how much does you, how do you, how much do you shape your neighborhood's identity or the collective community combined with kind of what, what Walker's saying right now, um, it's like what if you, you know, rewind the clock back to 1980, mm. and you saw these trends were were you know 30 people of 30 uh, yeah 30 years old and above were fleeing the cities, and people of 30 years and under were coming to the city, obviously because as rents get cheaper, and you have interesting things like Soho, right? Like Soho, which used to be, I don't know, I wasn't alive back then, but which used to be apparently not the nicest neighborhood, and then you have like you know Basquiat and Keith Haring and the whole movement of 80s pop artists move in. Now Soho is like the one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the world, and that only took like twenty years, or it only took thirty years to happen. Like I, I sit here, look at the New York City map, and I'm like, okay, what's going to be the next Soho? Look at like downtown LA. Look at Chicago. Look at these areas. Um, I graduated from University of Michigan in an interesting time in 2009, and you know Detroit was Detroit was probably at the bottom financially as a city. I mean, there were just acres of the city where like the the that government shut off traffic lights, they shut off fire services, they shut off police service, because no one lived there. I mean, or you hear the term urban blight, like Detroit probably pioneered that, un- unfortunately. But then you had all these like, really interesting creative people that would just go and like, essentially inherit or just take over an old Ford factory, 10 mm-hmm. acre size factory, and turn it into this beautiful hub for artists, experiment with eco farming. You still have the infrastructure of a big city, but now since rents are cheap, what are some of those interesting things that come out of it? You know, a lot of people now. I know the buzzword is commercial kitchens. Yeah, like the kind of the first thing you're seeing come out of this cheaper commercial rent in downtown cities. Kind of like wonder what is, um, you know, what are those interesting things we're going to see come out of this?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's uh, that that's certainly fascinating, and I think another thing on those uh, kind of relevant to this subject would be uh, the idea of what would be like a hype house, right? Uh, that's something fascinating that I, I don't know what the actual financial, uh, looks like. I know like typically an investment firm kind of runs the bill for it and then something and then the brand deal over here. But I wonder if that becomes more of more of a trend where, where it could be a luxury place with so many people living in it together. I'm sure it's absolute chaos. I could never do that. No one would want to do that with me in the first place. But uh, but I I mean you guys you guys know the real estate game better than me. So what do what do you guys think of that concept? Like, is that an actual trend that could catch on? Not not always that you have to go be an influencer. But like, if I was a software developer, let me move in with eleven of my software dev homies, and we'll be able to afford some crazy spot in LA.
3: Yeah, I mean, tech's been doing it for the last twenty years. It's sort of like the story, right? I created my company in my garage. That's immortalized in our culture. So, uh, absolutely. And we are seeing a transition from commercial real estate into residential. So we know that spaces and these novel spaces, right, are opening up. And if you're a developer or you're an artist or something like that, and all of a sudden this office building that you thought was cool, now, you know, maybe you can go live in it. Man, why not? And you pay less than you would be paying. That is that is an interesting trend. I mean, we're we're still collecting data on that, but it is starting to point towards interesting usages for sure so what about a uh, flex residential slash office
1: spaces with working from home being more the norm um i can send you more information after this uh, but there, there's actually one in kansas city so flexbot it's a co-working space pretty much like WeWork, but the dunkin donuts to the starbucks of of we is the starbucks and they're the yeah so it's a little bit trashy sometimes <laughs> no shade but they're opening up this spot it's about i think 18 floors tall and it's got like about three to six floors, I want to say, of actual office space. The rest is living space, but it's a engineered space for entrepreneurs, business people, people who want to be in this crazy creative culture, creating all the time, working out of it. What, what's your guys'
3: take on that? Because I see that as a potential big play. I think uh, Sun probably can jump in with a more uh, <laughs> industry happy answer. I can tell you personally, though, that is quite literally, the description that I was giving before for what I'm doing right now. I mean, if I had a position like that where I could, you know, live and then my office space sort of is just right there, either in the same building or even within the same floor, that that would be the ideal. I mean, that's what I'm looking for, because as you said, like, I want to be around other creative people. I want to be around other people who are on the same kind of uh, work schedule or vibe or just, you know, being around other entrepreneurs, that is an addictive thing. And it's also very helpful when you're building a business. But from, you know, general trend sense, son, what do you think? Yeah, super interesting. It's like, if, if I hear you describe it the way you describe it, it almost like sounds
0: like the way you describe a college dorm. Yeah. Right? Like, you're not, exactly. really, I mean, yeah, obviously a ton of, you know, in the East Coast version of the uh, California garage is the, uh, is the college dorm, right? You're there with your buddies, you're bored of working on your math homework. So you start a company together. And I think, um it's really interesting because you, you have this amazing vibe, you're near people, you run into people on the floor, you know everyone, or you don't know everybody, you just have this kind of communal feel. But now it seems like what you're you know, Jake, just before we hit record on this, you were talking about how like we're almost, you know, potentially three semesters of of people not physically being there. Mm-hmm. If you're walking, you can jump in because you're experiencing this this personally as well. I'm like, does that is that vibe still valued? Are we going into society where like the next ten years we like rugged individualism Teddy Roosevelt style, is valued? Or are you going into the next 10 years where like the stuff you guys are talking about pushes forward in, in that sense?
2: I think definitely a combination of um, people developing their own independence during this period of time because you do need to learn how to spend time alone um, even with these flex spaces and um, co-working spaces that are getting popular when you're there now because um, I can vouch like I've been looking at them and they still are offering availability but you are kind of put into your own space because of social distancing issues so um after we come out of this even if i'm dedicated to co-working spaces people are going to want to still feed off the energy of being within those collaborative spaces but i think that rugged individualism is still going to be there because people are going to really come out of this with a strong head on their shoulders because they need to deal with how they spend their time how they manage their own um, anxieties their mental illness their mental health and um you can't do that by kind of getting bored with a math problem and then turning over to your friend and collaborating and getting that boost of energy you kind of need to just solve with it um solve that totally alone uh even if you're in a co-working space you're going to be kind of in a wee work stuck in a corner and not really feeling that um collaborative ethos so yeah you see some companies
0: try to do this and like i think you know, kind of, Jake, the way you were thinking about, like, the next, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Everything you think you know about how consumer behavior is, has either changed or is about to change because of what the world went through over the last 12 months or, you know, 10 months since March or earlier in, in some countries. Like, what is, how is that going to change in real estate? You know, we think about this all the time because obviously, you know, we're all working on a real estate tech company here. We don't think that we've seen the full extent yet. You know, people say the, you know, don't catch the falling knife or, um, you know, we haven't seen the, the last shoe drop and there's thousands of idioms about that. Real estate is just slow and it's slow because you got to get not only the four of us discussing our personal preferences, you got to get pretty much everyone at some scale to kind of like understand, hey, how do I want to be? Do I want to be more individual? Do I want to be more collaborative? How much do I want to risk health? How much would I want to risk, you know, just the, the pleasures of being around other people? And I think real estate is—it's it's going to change a lot. It's going to change a lot, and a lot of you know—you—you're in a good position to see the data and see the trends of how those are changing on a very micro basis. And I almost want to want to ask you, like, what do you see it? You know, some of the ideas you and me have kicked around before, like, mm-hmm. what if you, what if you had an influencer live in each building, and they were like the designated person? You know, that's just like a, a, a very present idea. But like, if you had to say, what is your craziest idea that you could apply to real estate and how it's going to look in five, ten years? What would that be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that influencer trend is, is something you're going to see more of because I think something that uh, you know we're we're talking about this idea of kind of a work slash live at home kind of flex space, right? This community oriented, and I think uh, when you look at more of your luxury kind of apartments, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say always luxury, but but I'm sure there there's there's complexes in in new york and other cities where okay pretty much everyone that lives here is young is doing kind of this 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 thing and it's kind of this this certain environment and and that's kind of the the situation i'm in here where it's like we we have a few professional athletes here and then everyone else is just like all young people like it's hard to find anyone over the age of 30 here um at, at my apartment complex and they've they uh it's it's one light and then there's two there's also a two light here but They've branded themselves so incredibly well to the point where they'll have 100 percent occupancy, like pretty much year round. It, it, it kind of gets ludicrous. But um, I think it's the branding of the location and what comes with it. And the community is surrounded by uh, because I think, you know, post-COVID, we certainly don't know what that world's going to look like. But regardless, I think your ability to work from home is is going to be something that that always stays, um, that obviously, if, if that's still uh, a capability of, of your job type. So, so that's kind of my stance on that. And so I think kind of with that in mind, it, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how communities and like complexes and apartment buildings can brand the community and and really let that thrive rather than your traditional sense of, okay, here's our spot and here's the amenities. And it's the same as the amenities down the street, you know, and maybe some are nicer than the other, but then the rents, the rent price is going to go with it too. So it's like, what what value are you adding that no one else can add? Because anyone can have a pool, anyone can have this, you know, hot tub thing, and sauna, and gym, whatever. But what is like the 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 I guess the emotional value attached to it, where they get a sense of pride, getting a chance to live at that area. And I think that influencer strategy is one that uh, you know, if, if I'm in that arena, that's something I would jump on immediately. Because if you can have a big name located there that's creating content always promoting it because it's happening inside of that sometimes similarly the the fans and the reach of that audience base it's like even if you're not a fan of that individual I would want to be associated with that because oh if I live in the same spot as them it's not that I'm going to become famous too but it's like oh well famous people live here like it must be a good spot and so i think uh i think that's a trend that 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 should likely bubble up uh but but we'll see because like you said real estate tends to be a little bit slow in a lot of arenas uh, but hopefully they can catch on to it before influencers, as we know it, kind of evolve and, and and potentially change.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And we're obviously interesting to see how the next how this all unfolds over the next couple of months and years. All right, ready, ready for some uh, rapid fire questions, Jake? Each one, yeah. each one a one word answer. Okay. The biggest difference between millennials and Gen Z is action. Hmm. Kansas City is the best at? Barbecue. Ooh, interesting. I support that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, if you could, uh, on your 12-month road trip, Yeah. you could be in uh, one city tomorrow as your first location. Where are you going? Palawan, yeah. Philippines. Uh, yeah. Uh, nice, nice. What's a, What's your favorite brand that you've ever worked with?
1: mcdonald's because when i was six years old i was just obsessed with the brand. and when we started the company i was like if i can work with one brand that's it made it happen really excited
0: <laughs> awesome man well look dude we gotta wrap up here we uh, really enjoyed having you on jake and we uh, look forward to doing this at some point in the near future again thanks
1: so much for having me on this was an incredible conversation